Welcome to Bookish at Bethel. I am Anne-Marie Koistra in the History Department, and I am joined today by Carrie Peffley in the Philosophy Department. This week, our guest is Samuel Zalanga, and he teaches in the Sociology Department at Bethel University. He's also a team member of mine on Western Humanities this semester. We're going to ask him a little bit about what it's like to be a Nigerian immigrant teaching in the Western canon, but we'll also pivot a little bit to talk about his recommendation for a book in the humanities program and even a little bit on persuasion. So stay tuned. So Samuel, um, thank you for joining us this morning for for Bookish at Bethel. And um, so you and I have actually taught in the humanities program together years ago. And so we wanted to start out by just asking you um, what it's like to be um, a person of Nigerian descent, an immigrant teaching in the Western humanities program, teaching the Western canon. Okay, thank you very much for this question. And thank you very much for inviting me to share some of my thoughts about this. I think... um, To put it in context, I will go back to the time when I grew up in Nigeria. I grew up in a rural community, and my parents were evangelists, but I always refer to them as peasant farmers, and they were peasant farmers, which in Latin America they call campesinos. Mm. So I grew up in a rural community, but what was very helpful for me, which as I reflect back on my life, is the fact that in my village, there are only five Christian families. All the other families are Muslims. Mm. But we, the five Christian families, are affiliated to a local church created by the Sudan Interior Mission. Mm-hmm. And they established a Bible school. So my life grew around that Bible school. They established an elementary school, which was also a mission elementary school. So that was the school I uh, attended. But um, so anyway, when I went to the university as somebody who was from a rural community and very poor, my desire was to see how I could contribute to bring about change. Mm. And so while in the university, I became very interested in the enlightenment (laughs) because uh, of uh, the encounter I had. But the turning point for me was a professor who attended University of uh, Anyway, he went to the, he went, he did his doctorate in the United States. And then in my first semester at the university, where I took a course, which was like a general studies course. And then he gave a lecture on Karl Marx. Oh, I know many people in the United States are really afraid of Karl Marx. (laughs) Okay. Because he's the founder of the socialist and communist uh, tradition. But I must be very honest here. Growing up poor, and not hearing in my church, anybody, they talk about charity in those days, but nobody was talking about justice or something oh. like that. And then uh, here I was from a village and I went to the university and I was really a village boy. And then I had this analysis of Karl Marx's ideas. I felt like I, I was very impressed and I was very surprised because I felt like even though Marx was a white person, even though he was German, that didn't matter to me. I just felt like there was somebody far away who recognized the existence of people like me. Sure. <laughs> okay. So that was the source of resonation that here I was in this, I grew up in this small village. Nobody knew about me or whatever, but it seems like there was somebody who uh, was aware of people like me. Mm-hmm. So 
I was going to study law, but I switched to study sociology. Mm. And then in my sociology classes, the chair of the department was at the University of Michigan before. And then he went to teach in Nigeria and he taught us social theory. So he will recommend the uh, readings like uh, the scientific revolution, mm -hmm. uh, the enlightenment and other revolutions that have taken place in the Western world. And I remember I would go to the reserve section of the library to sit down and read all those because for me, it was like studying another universe, <laughs> how Europe made this uh, transition. And I was wondering how did Europe make it and how can either Nigeria or African countries really go through this similar kind of uh, transformation. So that was where the interest really uh, started. And since then, uh, it has remained with me because I found out that ideas do not necessarily have to come from your locality before they can have some meaning to you. Mm -hmm. This has remained with me since then. And I developed a passion to understand the evolution of Western civilization. Mm. That's interesting. Samuel, mm -hmm. I don't know the story of how you get from a rural village in Africa to a university in the United States. Okay, that's an interesting question. And the answer to that question also will shape my understanding of uh, how human beings can relate to each other in ways that they can transgress boundaries of nationality race and ethnicity because given the fact that i was from a poor socioeconomic background that's one of the disadvantages that i had but i was also a minority person even in nigeria mm -hmm. i do not come from any of the larger ethnic groups okay so so even in nigeria i was a minority and then added to that i was a religious minority so yes. there are three things working against me um when I completed my undergraduate, I went and did my master's degree, but I was feeling very hopeless because Nigeria was a society where, or still remains a society where you need to have a godfather, mm. somebody who can connect you in the system. And this is why, for instance, when I feel very concerned about the struggles of uh, the ordinary people of the United States, it is part of my own experience to create a society where uh, irrespective of somebody's background, they could feel there's an opportunity for them to move up. They do not have to know anybody. Mm -hmm. So when I became frustrated, I wrote, I went to the library and got the names and addresses of over 60 universities, some in the United States, some in Canada, and then some uh, in the United Kingdom. And in those days, of course, there were no computers in Nigeria. So I used stencil, something they call stencil type along later describing who I was, what I wanted to do with my life, my qualification, and then ask them whether they had a scholarship I could apply for. Mm -hmm. And if they did not have any scholarship I could apply for for my doctoral studies, if they knew any place where I could get such a scholarship, please, they should kindly send me the information. And amazingly, people responded. <laughs> you know, <laughs> a lot of people responded. So it was in response to one of those letters it was the response to one of those letters that ended up bringing me to the University of Minnesota. Wow. So this professor, uh, Ronald Aminzade, who is now retired at the University of, from the University of Minnesota, but I, we maintain close relationship. He has become like an adopted 
brother to me or something uh-huh. like that. But he was the director of graduate studies. And when he got my letter, he said uh, he thought if I had the qualification that I said I had, they could get me something. Mm-hmm. So to cut the long story short, uh, he sent the application materials to me. And then uh, amazingly, he paid the application fee, which was $50. I did <laughs> $50 was almost twice my monthly salary at that time. Wow. <laughs> okay. Nice. So he paid for the application fee because the graduate school would not process my application without the application fee uh, paid. So, um, and then finally, I got a letter from the department telling me that I got admission and I would have teaching assistantship, but uh, they also recommended me for two fellowships, graduate school fellowship and then the MacArthur Scholars Fellowship. Wow. I would know the result by March 15th, 1993. <laughs> uh, but they said, even if I didn't get any of the two fellowships, I should start preparing to come because with the teaching assistantship, I should be able to uh, get uh, myself at the University of Minnesota. So on March 15th, I got a FedEx letter. 1993, telling me that I got the MacArthur Scholars Fellowship. Wow. <laughs> so that was how I ended up coming uh, to the United States. And I remember how scary it was that I arrived in the United States with only $100 in my wallet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> At the Minneapolis St. Paul Airport. And then the taxi driver collected $30 for me. So I was left with 70. (laughs) Wow. That is kind of amazing. And then Samuel, if I'm not mistaken, and I know I have to ask you because you're not necessarily someone who's going to reveal this, but I think, have you gotten more than one Fulbright or are you at just one Fulbright? No, I got two Carnegie African Diaspora Fellowships. Okay. And then I got a Fulbright Fellowship. Um, right now, I have applied for another one, and my name is in the last <laughs> process of decision. So I'm hoping that maybe by March I would hear <laughs> something about that. <laughs> March 15, 2021, right? <laughs> yeah, I am hoping that by March 15, I would hear something from them because uh, it has gone through the review process, and the reviewers recommended it. And the reason why I'm hopeful. I'm prayerful about it is the person at the U.S. Consulate General in Lagos, Nigeria, who will make decision was my supervisor when I did the first Fulbright. <laughs> nice. I think you're our mm-hmm. most prestigious scholar on Bookish in terms of all of the awards that you've won, Samuel, by the way. So definitely. Well, thank you very much. But I accept that in humility. My passion, actually, as I always tell students, it's just to see how I always remember how people invested in me because given my disadvantaged background, I couldn't have been here uh-huh. where I am. And I'm very thankful to God for that. Uh-huh. So what gives me greatest, the greatest joy and happiness is to see what I can do to make a difference in another person's life. That gives me more joy than thinking I don't drive a Land Cruiser. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, one of the other questions that um, Carrie and I have been asking our guests this semester is if um, you were going to be able to impose your own book selection into the Western Humanities course, what book would it be? Okay. I think very early when I was in 
Bethel, I was attending a lecture somewhere and then somebody made a reference to a book. And I have been very interested in history right from the beginning. And I found out that Western humanities is about history. It's about culture in different historical periods and things like that. But then I came across this book that I thought played a very, very important role in shaping my understanding of history and uh, everything that I I do in terms of history. And by the way, my area of specialization in terms of methodology in sociology is historical uh, sociology. So I'm a historical comparative sociologist. So this book was written by Nietzsche, Ah. Frederick Nietzsche. And the title of the book is On the Advantage and Disadvantage of History for Life. (laughs) On the Advantage and Disadvantage of History for Life. So without getting into much details about what led Nietzsche to wrote this book. I think it was originally published in 1874. And this was after the Franco-Prussian War or something like that. And But essentially, the reason why this book is really very important is because Nietzsche tried to address the role of history in human life. He said, for instance, that we human beings are different from animals. Mm-hmm. We cannot live outside history. <laughs> we always have to have some kind of historical consciousness. An animal maybe can be happier, although John Stuart Mill said that an animal's happiness is less than a human human happiness, right? <laughs> yeah. So an animal can be happy because they don't have to think about the past. <laughs> they don't have to think about the present. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice if I sit down and I don't have to worry about anything about the past, present, or even future? I'm yeah. just concerned about the present, okay? So uh, he said this is something that we human beings uh, uh, have to confront every day every day in our lives so that's one point he made the second point he made in that book is that if you embrace the whole of history it is going to overwhelm you <laughs> there's so much in history that sometimes if you just embrace the whole of it you can become so overwhelmed that before you know what is happening you just feel there's just nothing you can do because it's too big so he said the way we can make a meaning is to create a niche within this broad area of history in other words I may not be able to change the whole of history or uh, whatever, but I can create a small area in history, right? Mm-hmm. And make an impact there. And if I make an impact there, it can uh, inspire me and inspire other people who would probably see and say, well, see what this person was able to do in this small way and made a difference or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that's the second point. The third point that he made in that book, which I think has helped me uh, in dealing with the uh wide range of historical information we deal with in Western humanities is the fact that he identified three types of histories, mm. monumental history, antiquarian history, and critical history. Mm. And each one of them has advantage and disadvantage <laughs> in society. And he said, any society that wants to thrive and flourish, we need a balance between these three types of histories, mm-hmm. monumental, antiquarian, and critical history. So monumental history is the history of these great men and women, right? Who have done great things. It's very triumphalist. Okay, so you move from Socrates to (laughs) Plato (laughs) to Aristotle, I think, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, and then (laughs) over and over, okay? Uh, St. Augustine and then St. Thomas Aquinas. So it's kind of like you go through this monumental, uh, people who have done monumental things, And he said, 
it is good because it inspires us to do great things. Mm-hmm. But the downside of it is that it tends to ignore the lives of ordinary and socially marginalized people. They right. don't seem to feature in history. Okay. Then he moves on to antiquarian history, which is just past in orientation. It always believes that what needs to be done is to con- to preserve the past. Mm. And preserving the past sometimes is done in an uncritical way. Everything about the past is just kind of like really great, okay, antiquity or whatever. But the critic, the downside of that is that that same past that is being preserved, that is being idealized, was also a past that oppressed other people. Right. So you can see the problem there. So we have to be very careful in the way we preserve the past or what we want to get from the past. But still, there's importance for us to preserve something from the past. We can throw away everything. But then the third type of history is called critical history, which is kind of like history written from a scientific point of view and then history written from the perspective of socially marginalized mm-hmm. or oppressed people. So it's like, if you are going to write the history of the United States from a critical perspective, maybe you write it from the perspective of Native Americans. Right. And right now I have assigned one book for my courses, Ronald Takaki's A Different Mirror, yeah. which is just a history of... <laughs> well, sometimes when I'm reading it, I feel like, wow, this is yeah. really a different <laughs> yeah. way to understand American history. So that's the importance of that kind of history. It takes us... It, even when you study monumental uh, events, you look at the people who shape those monumental events as ordinary human beings, right? Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, Thomas Jefferson was really great, you know, very, very great in terms of shaping American Revolution. But when you study him from this critical perspective, you find out that, well, he still he had slaves and he slept with one of his slaves and uh, he ended up having children. Away. So at some point you feel like, oh, maybe this guy is just like any other right. ordinary person or something like that. So, but the danger of critical history is that it can make us to become so cynical and so right. skeptical. <laughs> okay. <Right. laughs> that to the point where uh, you become all, there's no hope when somebody brings any, uh, information about something that has been done to improve society, uh, people will just respond by saying, well, they tried it before, it didn't work, or something like that. Right. So so Nietzsche was very concerned that while critical history can make contribution, but we have to be very, very careful because it can, makes us, it can make us to become very cynical and skeptical, which can be destructive. <laughs> yeah, that I've never read that text before. It sounds like it would actually be a great way to start the humanities program. Yeah. yeah. To think about what our various approaches to doing history are, could be, yeah. should be, and what some of the dangers are. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yes. And I appreciate you making this comment because Nietzsche made it very clear that there is a need for balance among all these three types of history. Mm-hmm. And I know right now we just finished reading Edmund Burke's Reflections on the Revolution in France and then Thomas Paine. And I gave a summary of these three different types of histories and encouraged the students say, saying, in general, not just about Burke and Paine, they can just see history broadly in this way and it will help them to see the need for balance among these three different types of histories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so interesting. So this is going to seem somewhat tangential, 
But last yeah. night I was teaching um, a medieval thinker by the name of Al-Razi, um, who is a, a Muslim thinker, although very um, nominal. Um, he actually thinks religion is at best unnecessary and at worst incredibly dangerous. Um, and so we don't have a ton of his works because he was branded as dangerous, as an infidel, as an innovator, right? All of those really dangerous things. But he writes on essentially doing scientific and historical methodology and gives some of the same cautions um, about being critical, about approaching our biases, about being careful with, and he's, he's criticizing in this particular work, Galen, who is a really important ancient scientist um, and doctor. And he's saying, look, what we have to do is respect the people who have come before us, but be willing to question them because that's how we improve. Um, but it's this very delicate balance. Balance. Well, two comments I would like to make about that is, you see, one, you may not have thought about this, but for a lot of people, given the fact that we're in Bethel and you are a white woman, some people will think, what has this woman got to do with the Islamic? <laughs> some people, they wouldn't tell you what they think that way. So isn't it so fascinating that we're in Bethel and we can have somebody do that? I love engaging ideas. And these are the kind of things that inspire me when sometimes people think I'm so excited about Western ideas. There was somebody who once uh, said in the Association of Third World Studies that they should pray for me because I am too Westernized. <laughs> oh, <funny. laughs> okay. I mean, when I went to uh, Africa for my, the University of Justice in Nigeria for my first Carnegie African Diaspora Fellowship, I was very critical of uh, what was happening in Nigeria and Africa. I was working with about 150 uh, graduate students. I didn't know that one of them was circulating information among the students that I was a neo-colonial foreign agent. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> because I was very critical. So presumably the United States sent me there or whatever. So I didn't know that he was spreading this information. So it was when I came back and then I was teaching the course on Africa. And then there's a week I devote to discuss race and enlightenment to see how the idea of race has shaped the way Western people have related to non-Western people. And then I thought uh, the reading was quite interesting. So I shared the reading with all these 150 students mm -hmm. and I told them that this is how some scholars within the Enlightenment movement thought about uh, Africans. Okay, but then after doing that analysis, I told them that the important thing for me here is how uh, how you think about somebody and how language mediates our relationship. Mm -hmm. So it is also about power, because even if Europeans had that way of thinking, if they did not have power to conquer Africa, it wouldn't have made any difference. So I said, but if it is about power, we have to then ask ourselves, within Africa, are there situations where people with power are also today oppressing other people? <laughs> okay, mm -hmm. And then this guy then wrote this email to the whole uh, group saying he's apologizing to me oh. because uh, uh, when he when I came he thought I was a neo-colonial foreign agent <laughs> but now a neo-colonial foreign agent will not write critiquing the enlightenment in this respect right so mm -hmm. it didn't yeah so I appreciate the fact that you uh, 
brought this up. But then lastly, the point I would like to make about that is from the point of view of sociology of knowledge. This is an area that I've been very interested in, uh, which was uh, part of the work of Karl Meinheim. Marx talks about it a little bit, the relationship between knowledge and the social context, or if you like, historical context or cultural context. Mm -hmm. So to me, what is so fascinating about this uh, Islamic scholar that you just mentioned mm -hmm. is what was the context that led him to think that way? Because it's fascinating that he was coming from a religious tradition that probably was uncomfortable with this kind of questions, but yet he was willing to engage this kind of idea. So was it his uh, training? Was it just his courage? Was it his background or something like that? So, right. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. What is it that makes these thinkers, regardless yeah. of where they're coming from, willing to yeah. challenge these ideas? It's, it's, it really is. The sociology of knowledge is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. yeah. I, I wonder selfishly if I can mm -hmm. just move the conversation in a well, pretty different direction, only because Samuel and I are also reading with Humanities Three students, Jane Austen's Persuasion. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And Samuel made a remark, I think in our meeting yesterday, like it was as if he was visiting a foreign country reading that book. Am I, am I sort of getting what you said kind of right? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so Samuel, I, I don't want to spend too much time talking about it, but I would love to hear your perspective on what it's like for you to read. This is your first time reading this book, isn't it? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, so I'd love to hear what you're thinking about the book and um, maybe even what you talked a little bit about with students. Yeah, well, you know, given like I grew up in a rural context also, um, and I remember, was it Ferdinand Tonis, this German scholar, talk about, he compared Gemeinschaft and Gesellschaft. Uh -huh. Gemeinschaft means community or something like that. So I could see the sense of community that was there, the way the relationship are so entangled. People are related in one way or the other and all those kind of things, which was not uh, strange for me because I grew up in an African context and I know how that was really the case. Um but my concern, especially given that I'm somebody who comes from uh, the socially marginalized group, I was just wondering where if manners and uh, cultural beliefs and tradition are supposed to be adhered to in relationship and things like that. Well, if some people happen to be uh, at the margins, I don't know how <laughs> this situation can really uh, change. So that was something that I was really very uh, interested and fascinated with. But I was also concerned, and I raised this in class, about somebody trying to get married and somebody telling him or her not to. Yeah. You know, uh, mm -hmm. I'm referring here to Anne. <laughs> how yes. Russell told her not to marry. And I asked the students. So I haven't had anybody. I don't know how marriage decisions are made in this country, but do your parents tell you <laughs> who you're going to get married to or whatever? Okay. So, um, so I noticed all those kind of things, but I was concerned about the question of gender, yeah. the way women were treated. Because when I came to the United States at the University of Minnesota, the first organization I joined at the University of Minnesota was a gender group. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I, there's quite a lot of story about that, but I, given the culture I grew up and my mother was really a very, very strong woman. Mm -hmm. Okay. I 
call her as somebody who is Puritan but compassionate. <laughs> okay. Yeah, she taught Sunday school. And so, but I felt from her experience that she was respectful of people, but as a woman, she she felt she had an opinion and she would really articulate it. And she was very serious with reading and things like that. So when I saw the way other women in the culture were treated, when I came to the University of Minnesota, the first group I joined was Martha Easton was the woman, was the sociology graduate student who was heading that group. I still remember her. Uh So I was concerned in the book, the way I feel like uh, women were in some way kind of like restricted. But I also know that some people say uh, women within the house can control the private sphere and have a lot of influence there and things like that. So that's another way to look at it. But I brought up the book written by... um, Betty Friedan, The Feminine Mystique. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which was just a book that said for for women to be educated and just to be kept just (laughs) within the house, that can be very, very boring. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But then at the same time, the way some women reacted to her saying that she's devaluing women who have chosen to remain at home. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So you see the debate and the dynamics. So I love the stories, but and I can reflect the lifestyle of these upper class people, <laughs> which I am not a part of. Right. <laughs> Me neither. You know? Nope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I also told the students that I wouldn't like to interact with somebody. And because sometimes in the book, you feel like any little thing somebody said or did, somebody was analyzing it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I felt sometimes like I don't want to be around somebody and make them feel like any little thing they say or do i'm analyzing that because that can make somebody go through a lot of emotional labor (laughs) yes well and i will just say my students were very sort of struck by the fact that Anne and captain wentworth had parted ways seven years ago yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah. that she basically didn't have anything to take away from her dwelling on that sort of loss Whereas he went off to, you know, join the Navy and make a fortune. She's literally no occupation, no change of society, no change of location. And one of my students was like, well, what was she doing for seven years? I'm like, well, not a whole lot. Right. So, yes, actually, one of the issues I brought up there, the question I asked one of the groups was, do men and women process time or analyze time the same way? Because just as you said, which is what you just described, because maybe people can be going through the same kind of situation, but they may process it very differently. Mm -hmm. And given the fact that in those days, marriage was really, really very important Mm -hmm. in the uh, life of a woman. It's not like today where somebody can decide not to get married and that's okay. But how she was able to survive that, I could just feel, sometimes I felt like, uh, the way she was left uh, like that, she was denied to marry this guy and then she was just there. I don't know. It was not easy for her no. to cope with life in those seven years. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I frequently when I'm teaching persuasion or um, pride and prejudice, trying to get students to understand how important, like how devastating it was for women to not be able to get married because it left them with no viable options, nothing that they could do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Samuel, I am... Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. 
you can continue. <laughs> I was fine. just going to say, I'm sort of mindful of our time and I feel like we could talk yeah. to you for forever, <laughs> yeah. but um, I do want to make sure that um, folks out there know what you're, li- you're reading for fun. So what's on your nightstand these days, Samuel? Um, in terms of uh, reading, one of the things that, uh, there are two things that actually fascinate me about reading. First, I'm interested in, things that, or people that did something to bring about change, because mm-hmm. I'm interested in how societies change. This is something that is so uh, important to me. For instance, there's this book, uh, The History of American... Anyway, the book is just about how America transformed economically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I bought the book on CD. I think I listened to it for about three months. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what is so fascinating to me was just... Of course, when you drive across America today, you see all these highways, you see this all uh, high standard of living for among a lot of people, whatever. But that book tried to show little by little how America changed mm-hmm. over more than a century to become what it is today. So mm-hmm. this kind of books that deal with change and how change comes about, is it through social movements, is it through individuals or something like that? Mm-hmm. That's something that is really very important to me. And then the second genre of readings that are very exciting to me is biography. Oh. <laughs> I am really, really interested. And biography is something that can bring quite a lot, but I'm interested in how uh, people experience their lives, the meaning they made out of their lives or something like that. And maybe this has become even more important to me as I'm getting older. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested in how do people make meaning of their lives? Because mm-hmm. people can be in the same situation but depending on how they make meaning or the meaning they make out of their lives they can pursue different strategies yeah so so these are the two kind of genres of uh reading and faith is something that comes into that like how yeah. uh because when i came to bethel i never took a course on religion in religion or something like that but i was assigned this course religion in society to teach and gradually, I almost became like a religious studies scholar. Sometimes when I go to some conferences, people think like I'm a religious studies scholar. I said, no, <laughs> I am not. <laughs> yeah. Samuel, what's the latest biography you've read? What's the, what's the latest person you've read about in terms of your biographical reading? Um, let's see. Uh, part of the reason is uh, my challenge is that I had a lot of book chapters that I had to <laughs> work on. So it was really difficult for me to, um, but it was difficult for me. But I think in the summer, yeah, was it? Yeah, last summer, the biography that I read, which was quite interesting for me, was uh, Buchanan. Mm. Oh. Not Patrick Buchanan, but there's this Buchanan who started the uh, public choice theory in, pol- in politics. There's something called public choice theory. Okay, and public choice theory is a very fascinating theory because they have very logical arguments about how um, things should be privatized. Okay. Because government officials are paid whether the program succeeds or not, so they don't have any incentive <laughs> to make sure. If you are in business, you know that if you are not producing results, then you are going to be out of business. But if you are in, if you are a civil if you're working as part of the government, you're guaranteed your career, whatever. So you will just be there. So this is 
his biography became uh, the, the his biography, which is part of the biography of a movement, mm-hmm. became very very interested. I became very interesting in, and I spent the summer uh, doing that. And then in the summer too, I spent some time because as we got into the fall, I was very scared about teaching in the fall because of all this COVID-19. To be frank with you, I was really, really very scared. I never thought I would be able to handle it very well, but it went very well. But uh, I was very concerned about how charismatic leaders come to power. Mm. So in this respect, I ordered some documentary films about how Hitler became very influential Mm -hmm. in Germany, in German history. Okay, people might criticize him or whatever, but he was definitely a charismatic figure. Right. <laughs> if you see, yeah. yeah. Now, you people can disagree with the way he used his charisma, right. but I think uh, he was just somebody who connected, connected very well with the German people at that time. Right. Yeah. Well, I, it's always a little humbling to invite um, really scholarly folks on the podcast, because my um, nightstand reading is going to sound very light by comparison. But um, let's go ahead, Carrie, what's what's on your nightstand? Well, I mean, currently, or what I read last night um, is is much lighter, although deeper as I'm getting into it. So Samuel, I'm a huge Terry Pratchett fan. For my when I was in graduate school, I started realizing if all I ever read is metaphysics and epistemology, I'm going to go crazy. So mm-hmm. I would make sure that I was always reading a fictional book before bed to just get something different. So I always read a work of fiction um, on my bedstand. Uh, and so right now it's Terry Pratchett's um, Monstrous Regiment, which I just started. And it's about, I told Anne-Marie, about a woman who pretends to be a man to join up uh, to fight in the military. Um, but as it turns out, I'm getting deeper into this book and, and it's hilarious. It's a satirical sci-fi novel, but this woman who's hiding her real nature finds out everyone else in her entire regiment, they're all women. And they're the only ones left because their country is so focused on war that they've killed off everyone else. And so these women have all joined for various reasons. And it's this sort of really telling and fascinating take on the nature of war, um, but through this um, hilarious satire. So I'm reading that. And then I have just ordered, I'm so excited about this, Agnes Bowker's Cat, uh, that's about witchcraft. It's the oh. David Cressy book <laughs> that um, that Jen McNabb recommended uh, to me a few weeks ago. So that will be the next thing on my book stand. So not fiction, but it should still be very entertaining. Oh yeah, story. Oh, that would be great. So those are the those are the two things right now. Anne Marie, what's on your nightstand? Well, I've kind of gotten into a kick of reading detective mystery novels, and so I'm reading Dorothy Sayers book called Strong Poison, in which we meet um, this woman who comes back in later novels, but she's sort of an example of kind of the new woman. And um, she's on trial for allegedly poisoning her lover. And uh, Peter Whimsey is investigating and hoping to get her off. So a little bit more of a lighthearted reading. It's quite it's quite entertaining and, and good. So very nice. Yeah. Well, Samuel, thank you so much for being our guest. And for those of you listening, you've been listening to Bookish at Bethel, 